welcome to High Action. I'm Perry Smith. I'm Will Brom. I'm John Story, and together we're the New West Guitar Group. On today's episode of High Action, we're going to feature guitarist Michael O'Neill. A special thanks to our Patreon members and our sponsors who make this podcast possible. For more information on High Action and how you can get involved, please visit www.newwestguitar.com slash highaction. Hey, Will and Perry, how you guys doing today? You know, January. I know, right? January, and we have so much in full swing. I mean, guys, a year ago, we were in Tempe, Arizona, performing at the Lakeshore Jazz Series. We had just gotten back. Two years ago, we were in Utah, like today. That's right. Two years ago, we were playing in Utah, Facebook totally. Remember how icy that was in that day, and we played at the college there? Oh, my gosh. Back in the days when we would actually go on the road. I miss it, and I don't miss it, and I miss it. Uh, It's just a back and forth ebb and flow. But in the meantime, we have so much new content for high action. I mean, it feels great that we're kind of catching up. I mean, Perry, I'm pretty excited about what we've got coming up, some of these new artists, and particularly today, Michael O'Neill, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I love this uh, interview back when we did it a few months ago. And listening back to it recently, it was just uh, so apparent that Michael is just a wealth of experience on the guitar and in the music industry. I mean, here's a guy that hit it at a pretty sweet time, you know, like in L.A. Mm -hmm. in the 70s, getting big gigs in the 80s, recording all over the place, touring obviously with the great George Benson. That's been his one of his marquee gigs uh, for, what, 30 years, is it? I think 1981 was when yeah. he started. So going on 40 years. Yeah. So just, you know, hearing him talk about his experiences and then just what he's learned as a consummate sideman and a studio player. It was really impressive. Really, really impressive. I'm glad we got him on. Totally. And, you know, Will, you and I also have a similar experience with Michael in that I think the first like footage of Benson's band from the early 80s that I ever saw maybe in high school, was that Montrove DVD. Yeah, and you mentioned that, right? And that was your first experience checking him out. I thought I thought he was an Italian guy when I was watching it, because you can kind of see his face in the background, and like he's got the little mustache. And um, I, What stood out to me about what Michael was saying was, um, it's such a simple phrase that you hear, but, you know, as far as like whether you're being a sideman or a leader, your job is to serve the music on what occasion you're in. And I mean, he, mm-hmm. he takes it really seriously. And he, he had a lot of great, great things to, to say. Totally. And he's just, you know, again, we just have to thank all of these guys so much for contributing their time and their mentorship to us. I mean, it's really fun because, you know, we're talking to guys who are a couple generations or a generation ahead of us. And it's they always kind of try to impart some wisdom on us as the interviewers, as New West. But also then that, of course, goes to our listeners. I think some of the biggest takeaways from this interview, again, it's this common thread we're finding with so many of these great guitarists that, um, you know, serving other people and becoming a great rhythm guitar player will help you really find your sound and hone your craft and become just not beyond a guitar great guitar player a great musician and i think michael really is uh, somebody who's an example of that too perry what's um what's a gig that you've been on that you've been in like a totally supportive uh, pretty much a totally supportive role like michael have you had a few gigs like that 
Yeah, uh, definitely. Um, certainly New West is like that a lot of the time. I would say right. uh, a more recent gig I did was with a R&B singer named Patina Miller. And that was all just kind of groove-based, you know, stuff on my 335. Uh, plenty of gigs out in New York, you know, um, pre-pandemic. For a long time, I was doing this kind of touristy gig on a fancy boat. And half the time, you're just playing rhythm. You know what I mean? Right. And so I don't know that I've ever had a gig where I've been solely rhythm guitar. I mean, I've done a few like recording sessions and things like that. But I think learning that lesson of rhythm guitar, like you're saying, is crucial. What we've experienced in New West is having to go back and forth between rhythm, lead, ensemble playing, kind of putting all these things together. Uh, mm -hmm. And Michael talked a little bit about doing that. I mean, on the DVD you guys are referencing, he comes out with like a smoking solo at the very beginning, right? So oftentimes yeah. those you know, guys that are playing more rhythm parts, uh, they still have a lot of lead chops in their playing too. Yeah, totally. I know, Will, like when you joined New West, I remember that was the very first thing that you and I were talking a lot about. We, I, I remember when you came and rehearsed the book the first time in uh, late 2014, and you were like, man, I can just tell that this is like a rhythm chops, like all these parts. And it, you, I think you thought at the time that your parts were mostly rhythm guitar parts. But it, as we know in New West Guitar Group, we all share the rhythm. We all share the groove. It really just depends on the tune. Um, yeah. So maybe this gig, did New West kind of feel like that to you at first when you were, when you were getting Yeah, New ready? West was just a, a big slap in the face, you know, like <laughs> in a good way, of course. Right. But, you know, just, like have, having to to level up on all these things that as you know coming up in a in a jazz mindset bubble yeah. um you know uh, steel string acoustic comping on wrapped around your finger right. just w was like wow oh okay i really need like wait what pick am i using for this you know just right. totally different <laughs> yeah. ballpark yeah, man. Well, again, we're so excited to have Michael O'Neill join us today for this edition of High Action. And before we get to the interview, we just want to give a shout out to our Patreon sponsors. We are growing our Patreon page rapidly, and we appreciate it because every dollar that we get each month is going directly towards us producing the podcast. Our Instagram is really cooking, and we appreciate our listeners out in Portugal and Sweden, where we are in the top 10 music interview podcasts on Apple Music Podcasts and on, on Spotify. So we appreciate our listeners out in Europe. And uh, But let's get down to it. You guys, what do you say? Let's get right to it. We've got Michael O'Neill today here on the High Action Podcast. today here we are on the high action podcast we've got the great michael o'neill joining us michael how you doing man it's so great to have you today good good man good to see you guys thanks for the invite really really a pleasure and honor to be here with you guys oh man well like it's you're such a unique player man and like we've been interviewing a, a wide range of guitarists in the spectrum of jazz you've certainly had a, a, an impact here in los angeles and just also in the in the greater jazz community working with a wide range of both 
um, contemporary jazz artists, and then of course a lot of jazz legends, one of which we don't even have to name, who I know is uh, synonymous uh, with you. And I've definitely, I know we've got some questions about working with uh, Mr. GB for the like the past 30 years or so. But um, just to kind of kick it off here a little bit, we'd love to learn uh, for our listeners just to learn also a little bit more about your background. And I know that you have a famous family member who was a, a famous musician um, in Mexico. Is that correct? Exactly. Because I'm, I'm of half Mexican descent, Mexican-Irish. So therefore, my name of my production company is Green Bean Productions. <laughs> it was cool. built in. It was just there. But nonetheless, yes, my, my godfather, which was my grandmother's brother, uh, was one of the founders of the original, the very first, what we call Mexican Trio Folklorico, which you see all the time, the trio, the, the two uh, regular size Spanish guitars, and then the requinto, the smaller lead uh, guitar, you know, they were the very first, they're called Trio Calaveras, which happens to mean the skull heads. Why they chose that is probably Dia de los Muertos reference, I would think. But nonetheless, uh, you know, from an early age, uh, you know, probably three, they would come to L.A. every year to play downtown at the majestic million dollar theater. And there would be like week long, like partying, fiesta, food, music, you know, and I was like in the middle of all that, you know, taking it in. And, uh, you know, I did my part. They put me up on the table to do my little Elvis hound dog routine. Yeah, and so he must have been super encouraging seeing you as a youngster really get interested in, like, getting on stage and playing in front of some people, too. Did he encourage you to do that and pursue your music, even at that age? Yeah, yeah, he showed me kind of like my first boleros, you know, like romantic kind of like, you know, like just like basic kind of, uh, you know, Spanish love songs because that's what they specialized in so i got my first sort of little feet wet there um doing that that was even before you know uh doing like the whole american guitar thing like every you know young kid my age who like got stung by the beatles and the stones did you grow up um, in kind of eastern LA, is that is that correct too? Born and raised in Santa Monica, moved the family moved around a lot. Orange County, but we settled in North Hollywood, which was a pretty important thing because you know how many studios were in North Hollywood, you know. Right. Plus my schooling, what little schooling I uh, formerly that I had was at, in those days um, at a community college level, LA Valley College had an unbelievable musical program. As I played in the big bands there and got my music fundamentals there. And like, I mean, because of the proximity to all the studios, I mean, it was a robust thing, both from the standpoint of the, you know, the, the, the knowledge of the people there and the funding. Oh, yeah. The funding, right? In those days. Right. So you were you like 16, 17 when you were getting involved in that program over there? No, no, no. I was I was uh, eighteen. I just graduated high school, but but I was playing before then. I mean, I would sit down after school. One of my friends, we still joke about it. I would like you know, um, you know, get off school, whatever school I did. I didn't I didn't actually attend enough days to graduate <laughs> legitimately, but they got, graduated me anyway because. The, the, the school counselors, you know, I, I played a few concerts at, at lunchtime and gave them all a break, you know, 
you know, and I, I played Hendrix. I had Hendrix Trio, Cream, that wow. kind of shit. Um, but then um, uh, I would every day after school walk home and stop at my buddy's house. It, it was like blues all day, like the B.B. Albert, Freddie King. You know, that's, I mean, I went, you know, ate that for, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner for a couple of years. Yeah, man. I mean, and talk about like at the time, there's so many iconic clubs in the Valley too. What was the club that was kind of the country bar that was super, super famous? Palomino. Yeah, exactly. Did you go hang there? Because there were a lot of famous blues guys that played there over the course of a lot of years. Did you check some of that out? And and my ex-wife worked there. Uh, She was like, yeah, she was a waitress there for a while. So she hit me to actually to bluegrass to like really good like, you know, like uh, freaking Hoy uh, Axton and, and uh, I, I can't remember, uh, Doug Kershaw, just a, a bunch of different uh, people that I would have never, you know, really been aware of. But, uh, right. yeah, and, well, of course, you know, now if you want to talk about blues in those days, down in Hollywood on Melrose was the Ashgrove. <clears throat> the Ashgrove. Okay, the house band there was Johnny, was Johnny Otis. Okay, and we go in there, and uh, his son, Shuggy Otis, blues guitar player, was just coming up, cutting his teeth. He, you know, he let him sit in some. But I remember one night being there, Eddie Cleanhead Vincent, who's kind of like a jazz saxophonist, but bluesy. One night we were there talking to him, like after their set, and, you know, and he, he and, and they come and get him, they go, we have a phone call for you. So he goes over there to the pay phone, and he comes back like he's all bummed out. His ex-wife had just died, you know. So it was just, and I also have, this is a big one at the Astro. We went to see Freddie King, who had special guest Leon Russell playing keyboards. Why? Because Leon Russell was producing his record, and Freddie invites a special guest up to play guitar. Wow. T Bone Walker. It was packed. No, it was it was it was a two show, two show kind of wow. thing, you know. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And like Leon Russell at that time had already produced so many iconic hits and had written so many songs for, for many guys. I mean, I'm trying to get the timeline here. Had he written had he had he written for Benson? Well that particular song was already in existence and Tommy LaPuma chose it for George, you know. Um right. whether he had written it by then or not, I'm not sure, but 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 uh, you know the, the the whiskey now the whiskey used to be like the joint man I'm telling you right now we used to go down there and get up there in in front of the line because we knew that if you go up to the balcony sit in the balcony the dressing rooms up there the band has to walk right by you whoa <laughs> was there a particular club around that time when you were going to college and stuff that you were just going to like every night to hear people or go sit in like maybe i don't know dante's or something like that too? well yes dante's and jimmy smith's oh my god jimmy smith's wow you talk about going to dante's where in my in my crazy sick mind it was like we're gonna go see the Italian jazz first over Dante Dante's right we get that we stop there first you know and man I'm telling you it's just like Joe Pass Tommy Tedesco Joe Diorio you know Ron Day back then I mean ridiculous in there one night Joe Pass was playing solo and and Joe we know Joe was an ex addict who you know kicked the habit right. But he had this intensity. He was like playing like gold, chord melody stuff on his own. 
and scanning the room like visually. I'll tell you who who takes that a, a lot of steps further is George. George will be talking to you a whole conversation while he's playing the stuff that like like what in the heck are you playing there? And he's talking about this over here. Of course, for our listeners who are checking out the podcast, we're talking about the great George Benson, who you you started really working with in about eighty one. Is that exactly correct? exactly? Boy, you 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 study. You're a studious type, aren't you? We have to do our homework here with guys on your level, man. We can't be showing up to a bullfight with just a, a a red drape here. We gotta we gotta know our stuff. So George, so you had met George as you had told me before nineteen eighty one at Jimmy Smith's Supper Club. Is that is that correct? Yeah, that was like one of the most frightening moments of my life. Um, I would, you know, and on Monday nights, you know, they had the uh, jam session night. So you come in and I signed up to play and I was ne- going to be next up. And so, you know, you're there waiting at the front table to go next. I got my guitar out and just noodling a little bit. And my friend and I, we look back, we see this head come in the entrance. Go, Man, that looks like George Benson. Damn, it was too. So I get up there to play this tune, and, and they count it off. It's it's pretty fast, and I don't really know the tune. So the whole first couple courses, I got my head down there on the wood, you know, amp uh, amp off, and just kind of trying to get an idea of the progression. And George sits at that very front table, and he's the, up there like, you know, just like oh. <laughs> but he managed he managed to say something positive you know uh, about my playing at the time uh, which i've since learned that he's like the obvious choice as international jazz guitar ambassador and i've seen him at that position for so many years so many decades with such grace um you know and it's uh you know, I mean, like you go to the, uh, you know, the European Jazz Festival where they have the uh, jam session afterwards that goes to three in the morning. He's the last guy there. He wants to hold, yeah, he wants to hold court. He wants to hold court. And I know all the stories and now I can prompt the stories when I see some new victims. <laughs> At that point, back to this this moment, were were you like really in heavily involved in playing bebop at that time? Or I imagine at that era, being in LA, going to all these clubs, you're hanging at Dante's, you're going to the whiskey, you're probably trying to like you want to have a career as a guitar player too, I assume. Was at this point you were kind of setting yourself up for that not yet it was all about the jazz at that point yeah i had one guitar and it was the ibanez 175 that's right it was all it was all about the jazz and and you guys know all too well like if you're gonna if you're gonna go into that um you know you're gonna go into the jazz thing it's not for the faint of heart (laughs) you know it's kind of like you gotta sort of be dedicated for at least for a time to uh, you know get get proficient um so that that's that the, the other stuff didn't come really till later and like in uh, came in like 79 i had the opportunity a friend of mine was uh uh working like programming synths for joe sample and the crusaders were looking for a guitar player and so i got the audition and so i went and bought the two most recent crusaders records and i just randomly chose three songs off of each to learn that I liked. And lo and behold, I get to the audition and they called these songs. So I I acted like I was reading it down. 
<laughs> wow, man. Yeah. And, and got the gig. Got the gig. And and then the necessity is the mother of invention. It's like you get the gig, you adapt to that gig, and then your artistry kind of moves in that direction. And one thing I hear from a guys of your generation who were in LA at this time is they talk about how there just was a lot of gigs going on. You know, do you feel that's true? And that there were just there were maybe more opportunities then than there are now? I'm just always curious to ask guys. Clearly, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean I could play well, once I started to you know, after the Crusaders gig, I, I, I all of my lackings were highly revealed to me. Uh, so I went on about a whole uh, like you know quest of how to support, how to play as a supportive player. I had never really thought about that much. Just like man, let me just burn through these changes, right? Um, so <clears throat> fast forward, uh, I could play every night of the week a pretty cool like kind of like original creative jazz related kind of gig at a myriad of clubs. Ventura Boulevard had like loads of them. You know, we had like, you know, you had like, okay, um, uh, you had like the Blah Blah Cafe, you had the Blues Room, you had Carmelo's, you had Josephina's, you, and, and new ones would spring up for a while and then go away. But man, there was like, yeah, you could you could go play every night of the week, basically. Wow. Now, you weren't making a ton of money, but you could cobble together a decent little living, you know, for being a bohemian, you know, shorts wearing, you know, aspiring artist, you know. Did you feel like with George, once you got that gig, that that really kind of pushed you in that that role of like, I want to go deeper with playing, I hate to say rhythm guitar, but like auxiliary guitar type of parts? That's still happening. I'm still like refining my individual voice and and the great thing about George being the fact that he was a side man, fully understood the plight of a side man and gave you and, and gave me just a, a great amount of space. He would give me the input, just the essentials. I need this. But then beyond that, man, it's, you got it. You know, he trusts that you're going to find. So there's that kind of like old school, like jazz leader, a good leader, you know, like picking his talent and letting them kind of like find their way in his world. And yes, I, it, I owe a lot <clears throat> to that position. Today's episode of High Action is brought to you by Marchioni Guitars. Stephen Marchioni is a luthier based in Houston, Texas. He's been building guitars since 1990. His style is extremely unique. He builds uh, classicals, arch tops, steel strings, solid bodies, and even violins. He's studied uh, makers like Jimmy DeQuisto and John D'Angelico, and his style is both a combination of modern uh, technology and design with old school tradition in terms of how arch top guitars are built. My 16-inch arch top I purchased in 2017 is incredible. I love playing that guitar. Um, and so if you'd like to hear more recordings of the 16-inch arch top or learn more about Marchioni guitars, visit marchioni.com. Maybe just to talk on that a little bit, too. In the early 80s, obviously, George was a mega star at that point. And um, he, let's see... Uh, 2020 came out in what 84 so by that point you had been on the road with him a little bit as he was getting into that record what was the record that you first toured with him on well it was right we were coming off of give me the night and then there was this uh, Benson collection which just 
was a collection, but with the two new songs, Turn Your Love Around and Never Give Up. Yeah. So that was like 81. And at that point, like, like for instance, our gig in L.A. was seven straight sold-out nights at the Greek Theater. <laughs> and then you guys were like, you guys were playing like, like Wembley Stadium and stuff like that. Eight, eight straight sold-out nights at Wembley, in the Wembley Arena. Wembley. Wembley Arena. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Those, yeah, those were, it was like the, 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 the super peak at that point. But, um, but you know, interestingly enough, George had those mega hits. And, and as the years kind of came by, I sort of saw him trying to recreate that pinnacle. Okay. And because he was such an anomaly, I mean, who, who would have thought someone with was that deep of a jazz guitar and a great vocalist would have that kind of pop success. You know, it's like, that's kind of like really rare. So he, he was getting very frustrated with trying to like you know, get back to that. So, so it, things got kind of interesting. I saw him being less than happy about things for himself. Uh, and then in around uh, like 89 or 90, I, I, I took about a four year leave my daughter was being born, and I, I wanted to do some other things. So, uh, um, when I came back in '94, I there was this huge difference, and it was that I think, in my way of view of seeing it, is that he had now uh, embraced elder statesman status, and was now kind of like, okay, I've done this. Let me get back to the guitar playing, and the way he was playing was just like, oh, oh yeah, my God. Yeah, man. Stop it. There's a track of yours I really want to share with the listeners, too. This is Once in Brazil off of, uh, what was the name of the record again, Michael? I'm Funky sorry. Fiesta. Funky Fiesta. I dig. I dig. All right, let's take a listen to this beautiful nylon string sound you're getting, man. First of all, Michael, it's great to virtually meet you. Uh, I was in Los Angeles from 2001 to 2009. I wanted just to see if you could share some of your ideas about what it means to be a great sideman. Uh, you know, in looking at your bio, you've worked with so many people. And perhaps you could share a little bit with us and our audience just what those experiences have taught you about how walking in the door what kind of attitude you have to draw upon and how you have to be ready on the guitar. One thing that I think is, um, you know, kind of underrated is uh, being a servant. 
service. This is what we're doing. We're providing a service. We're serving a situation. And so the, the eventual um, place of realizing and learning how to be the perfect servant for each situation, finding just the right hat for each situation, and sort of defining those parameters, trying to make an assessment, learning to assess the situation to go, what are my true parameters here? You know, it's easy to do too much. That's the obvious. It's also easy to do too little. Yeah. You know, because, okay, uh, first of all, learning the material, you know, as it was intended is, you know, prerequisite. You got to, you got to, you know, you're not going to like reinvent the wheel all of a sudden because you want to. Okay. So that, that's, so that's the first thing learning that stuff. And then as you can get into a situation and become comfortable within it and start to maybe let your voice kind of appear and emerge within that situation somewhat. And then you can see like with the artists you're working with, how they respond. You might, sometimes you find out like, oh man, I didn't, I like, never liked that original anyway, man. Do your thing. Could be that. Could be no. Go back to the original part. Just do it, do it like a record. You know, so those are things, uh, those are some like prerequisites to, to doing that. And just like you guys have done here as far as your homework for this podcast, it's homework. Yeah. Homework. It's always, I don't care how good you are. I don't care if you're, you know, the homework, nothing replaces homework. Yeah. Prepare, preparation, you know. It sounds like it gave you a lot of musical gratification to be, in, to be in service to the music that was happening around you. Can you talk a little bit about the differences between being in that role versus being a leader and the different kind of gratification it's given you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, it's interesting. They, they, they actually do cross over to some degree, right? Sure. Because I mean, I can't tell you how many times I, I, just to be able to pay my bills, I've taken gigs. It's been a long time since I've had to, you know, knock on wood. But there was a time where I had to take just about any gig. You know, I mean, I need to pay the bills. And then some of the music that I would go into when I first heard, they go like, "Oh, I hate that. I hate that." And then it's something, I don't know if you guys experienced this, but um, there's a, a thing where a lot of times I'll hear a certain, certain kind of music and I won't like it, but then I'll experience playing it. And then it's all of a sudden, hmm, huh, that's a little different than I thought. It feels different. And I, yeah, I kind of like it. There's a place for it. You know, I appreciate it. And then lo and behold, you know, the next month I get called for this session that that last stupid gig I did made me learn <laughs> you know so yeah, yeah. there's a there's a lot of value in that in that part of thing and for me when i when i wear the leader's hat when i'm a leader um my experience of like for instance working with george has has, has really really been a big deal because um as far as um learning to respect the leader and his place the the side man thing can be very very fulfilling you know in and of yeah. itself i mean uh like in recent years i've been doing the barbara streisand gig and that's like just you know off the charts as far as like 
production and you know like you're playing for eighty thousand people in, in Hyde Park um you know it's, it's pretty wow. crazy wow. um and you know so and it's and it's challenging it's like a it's it's a combination of Broadway show music pop music you know some jazz a lot of reading you know um and uh so you know I think I probably got about 90% of the notes right. <laughs> That's good. And I was happy with that. I was yeah. really, because the, the other thing I was going to say is interesting. It triggered this thought, Perry. And I learned this from, uh, from George. This is a really big point for me. One of the big things I've learned working with George all these years, being a master, is how does a master navigate an evening when they're not on their best? interesting to understand that yes yes and like accentuate the positive like how do you not make it really noticeable you know how do you yeah it, that's kind of like how did he do it what did you what did you glean from that he's well he survived many storms yeah you know, you've you've had a long career as well, and one thing that I'm always fascinated to ask cats like you is kind of the differences between the scene in L.A. Uh, in the 80s, 90s, maybe late 70s, compared to kind of where it is now, where it kind of started to change in the 2000s, especially because of the uh, change in the record industry. And when I moved down to Los Angeles from the Bay Area, it was 2001. And I went there to study primarily with Joe DiOrio and the whole jazz thing that was happening at USC. But I would hear stories from guys like Pat Kelly and many other people about how the studios changed. How have you been able to navigate that change in the studio scene in LA? And can you talk a little bit about the perceived differences that you've picked up over the years? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, about a decade ago, I, I, I kind of, I guess you could say I saw the writing on the walls. And I realized I needed to take the bull by the horns and learn, uh, embrace the technologies, you know, logic and uh, whatever, you know, all that. I started doing uh, some music, you know, so that was sort of like my foot, uh, my first foot into the water as far as like, you know, creating royalty based, you know, passive income. Right. So I so I started to like, you know, get into that. And, and, and it, was, it was a good discipline, too, because the tracks were short two minutes get your ideas in get a complete thought in in two minutes right very valuable exercise you know so and then uh, in the last decade or so i um i uh, i reached out to a television composer friend of mine who i've not seen for a few decades very successful guy and uh you know i uh had a meeting with him showed him some of my stuff and he asked me if i'd like to you know, be part of his team on a few TV series. So um, that's opened the door to me, uh, you know, composing in that regard. Um, and so that has kind of led to like where I'm like coming up on near 50 series I have music on now. Wow. Um, not, none of them are as a lead composer. It's all like for other lead composers to get three or four series going. You know, yeah. they need the help getting it out there. Um, but then uh, networking and we're uh, meeting young directors, uh, and so now I've done like about I don't know, twenty little for twenty uh, films. 
um, you know, that I'm doing. And I, and I, and I, what's interesting about it is that taking on the whole world of composing for media and, and all that comes with it, it has this kind of like an indirect but powerful effect on my playing. Man, Michael, <laughs> it's, it's a real pleasure to get to hang with you. Um, <clears throat> I was first introduced to your playing um, in high school when I bought the George Benson Live in Montreux 86 on Broadway. You, you have a shredding solo. You're technically yeah. like the first guitar feature of the whole show. And I mean, that whole DVD is so killer. So, you know, apart from wanting to dive into like your stellar rhythm playing on that. And also just curious, what, what kind of guitar was that? Was that a Strat or was that something, something similar? Yeah. A Strat body custom guitar made yeah. built by some guy who's back East. Uh, you know, it had like Seymour humbuckers on the front and back with split, uh, split both coils. And then I had a Bartolini single coil in the middle Floyd Rose yeah. You know, it was sort of the, the guitar du jour for being a backup guy of the day, you know. Um, by the way, did you enjoy the uh, fashion attire on that video? Of course. Were you wearing a tux? Is it a tuxedo? No, no. I was wearing this, like, you know, like a blue shirt with, like, a, a, a silver jacket and a white tie. Yeah, you yeah. Know, it's just... yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> That DVD is forever ingrained in my... I mean, like, I can just take myself back to, like, sitting on the couch in high school, watching that thing top to bottom. Um, so that was, like, my first, like... You know, that was the first time I heard you and saw you. Um, wow. Wow. It's, it's funny how the world just becomes smaller the older you get and, and you know, like, now getting to talk and hang. Um, man, I'd also love to ask about... You were talking about the whiskey. Like, did you see... Like, what are some of your, like, highlights of bands you saw there? Especially, like, in the rock idiom, you know. Um, I'm a big I'm a big rock guitar fan. I'm wondering, like, what are, what are some, like, highlights for you that you experienced? White trash. <laughs> you know, Edgar Winter, White uh -huh. Trash with Rick Derringer mm -hmm. on, on guitar. Yeah, and um, let's see, uh, there was a group called Focus, which was like a Dutch Hocus Pocus. Yeah, yeah, the, they, they were in the original three guitar Fleetwood Mac. Yeah, yeah Peter Green, yeah. Uh, Lee Michaels, who was, you know, like uh, an organist, and he had this drummer named Frosty, this big dude. It was like, and man, it was so loud and and uh, really good. But Albert King played in there. Um, God, who else did we see? I, I, you know, I can't remember them all. Oh, Chicago. The Chicago, before they were called Chicago, CTA, after the first black double album. But I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, I did see Hendrix twice. Not there, but, but wow. I did see him twice, yeah. Yeah, man, just be, being around at that crucial point where there's so much music happening. Um, man, another thing I'd love to talk about is, like, you, like, what are your ideas on, like, being a good rhythm guitar player? You know, um, something that we deal with a lot individually and as a guitar ensemble. And, I mean, I know you must have a ton of insight. You know, putting a lead playing aside, and like you talked about serving a music and across different genres, whether if, if it's on your Strat in an R&B setting or acoustic guitar, but like being a good rhythm guitar player, you know? Right. Okay, number one, listen to Al McKay. <laughs> no, number, number two, listen to Al McKay again. 
you know, for, for the funky stuff. I mean, that, and then in a more modern sense, Paul Jackson Jr. was a guy who inevitably so many gigs I'd show up on. He was, he had done the, 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 the recording. And so he had a way of just like crafting these like perfect parts mm. for that type of music, you know, same holds true. Like let's say if it's Brazilian finger style, it's like, you know, uh, Toninho Orta, uh, you know, guys like that. Um, speaking of, of those kind of guys, you guys hip to Leo Amuedo? Yes. Oh God. Yeah, absolutely. Why does it, why is it so easy for him? <laughs> because <laughs> he speaks portuguese yeah there you go there you go yeah but but yes but but the thing is is like you know um and and and, and back to al mckay al um started out as a drummer now that makes it make a lot of sense right because so it's like bam down here let's get it right here okay and and so um i always felt like it it was unfair for the for everything to fall on the drummer for the pocket. It's like we're all responsible for the pocket, mm-hmm. you know. And and I like to be responsible for the pocket, you know. And every now and again, you know, I'll even lead the pocket if you, if they let me, yeah. you know. When I think about the level of musician you are, it's to me, it's one of the highest. It's that you help others. In addition to you, you putting out your work, you help other people sound their best, too. So, um, yeah, just I don't know if you have any last bits of advice before we close out today's episode with that. Yeah, I would say that, like, you know, in considering any sorts of situations that any, any uh, aspiring player or even accomplished player might do is that to... Never, never make a, uh, it about one form of criteria that 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 like directs your decision making. You know, it could be somewhat, it could be a combination of factors. You know, like you know, if you if if you like something a ton and it doesn't pay too much, well, weigh those things out. What are you gonna What are you going to gain in the big picture from do, having the experience? Mm-hmm. You know, um, uh, and you know, things like that, I think, are a big thing. You know, what cool. is it a good investment of my time? Um, is it a good, you know, uh, like during this downtime, I've done like been involved in three or four of these like, you know, uh, coronavirus, you know, the mass, you know, like uh, productions that are, you know, everyone's on the screen. And, and uh, I got an email today for one of them. Uh, I, you know, it's like one in Spanish, they're going for a, a Latin Grammy on their video, on that video. So, you know, I mean, there, there was no money involved, you know, it was just, we're, we're doing it. And what else are we going to be doing? Yeah, man. Well, again, we thank you so much for, for joining us on High Action today, Michael O'Neill. And, uh, you know, we just wish you the best right now. We're going to be in touch um, as the episodes come out. And um, yeah, man, this is, this was, this was just awesome, man. Thank you. Thanks again for joining us for another exciting edition of High Action. We'd like to take this moment to thank our sponsors for making this podcast possible, especially those who follow us on Patreon. If you'd like to join us, visit us at www.patreon.com slash newwestguitargroup. There you can subscribe monthly to our Patreon page and get exclusive content from today's podcast. 
Lastly, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts for all the future episodes. Once again, I'm John Story with New West Guitar Group, and thanks for joining us on High Action.